Old Testament reading and sermon text is from Joshua 5, verses 13 through chapter 6, verse 27. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said, Are you for us, or are you for our adversaries? He said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus you shall do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. On the seventh day they rose early, at the dawn of day, and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city, and the city and all that is within it sh shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab, the prostitute, and all who, are, all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you... Keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon us. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted, and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat, so that the people went up into the city every man straight before him, and they captured the city. This is the word of the Lord. If you've been around the church for any amount of time, you probably are familiar with this story, right? The story of the falling of the walls of Jericho. It's a big story. It's a fantastic story. It's a miraculous story. It's the kind of story that gets put in every single children's Bible, right? But what is the point? I mean, we're going to look at Joshua in a few weeks. Uh, we're going to keep looking at some battles, and you're going to find that, that lots of battles get recorded in this book. But not all of them get this kind of detail. In fact, most of them are just little summaries, like a couple of sentences here and there. So why take all this time to explain this particular story? What does God want his people to know that he's handed this down to us for thousands of years? Well, beyond the, the blowing trumpets and beyond the, the marching people, beyond the, the rubble, um, this is a story that teaches us about how we relate to God. And it specifically teaches us about the blessings of a life that is surrendered to him in obedience. And so today for us to get that out of it, 
For us to understand this idea, I want us to look at three things. I want us to look at the question Joshua asks. I want us to look at the instructions that Joshua is given. And finally, I want us to see the deliverance that God provides. The question Joshua asks, the instructions Joshua is given, and the deliverance that God provides. Okay, so what's the question that Joshua asks? Before we look at it specifically, it doesn't take a, a lot of imagination to try and relate to Joshua here, to figure out just how he might be feeling at this moment on the eve of this battle with Jericho. We talked about it the last few weeks, right? These people that he is leading, they've been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. They just crossed through the Jordan River in this miraculous way after living every single day with God providing their food for them, manna. Now that manna has stopped, and here they are looking at this great city, staring down the walls of Jericho. This is Joshua on the eve of his first battle. As a commander, this is his first chance to lead the people. This is a huge deal. And culturally, back in their context, maybe even bigger than you would imagine. The first battle for a military leader was the test. It could make or break your career. This was going to be the sign of how the people are going to respond to your leadership, maybe for the rest of your life. I mean, just think about how you feel on before the first day of work or, or the first day of class or before you walk into uh, a meeting where you know there's going to be some conflict, right? Those are, those are much smaller examples, I know. But just think of your own fears and anxieties in those moments. Think of the questions in your mind. Am I good enough? What are people going to think of me? Am I up to this task? I'm sure that the walls of Jericho were about as intimidating an obstacle as Joshua had ever faced. And in that moment, here's what it says. If you've got your Bibles, you can open them up. If you don't have a Bible, uh, those paperback Bibles are free. Take one, make that yours. We want everybody to have a copy of God's Word. But here's what it says. It says, when Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, a man was standing before him with his sword drawn in his hand. So Joshua, in the midst of, of, of this confusion, he looks up and he sees there is this mysterious, mighty warrior standing there with his sword out. And it's not clear whose side this guy's on, right? Maybe he is a rogue member of the army of Jericho, who's come out to try to strike him down early. Or maybe he's a mercenary. Maybe he's somebody who's coming to join their ranks. And so Joshua asks this question. He says, are you for us or for our adversaries? And in that moment, God gives Joshua a tremendous gift. What God does when he 
answers this question is, is he takes Joshua, who is in the midst of this very small story, a story of whether or not he can lead the army, the small story of whether he can lead a successful battle, and he reminds him, Joshua, you're a part of a much bigger story than that. This is a story that's not about you leading the people to conquer a city. This is a story about God's plan to redeem the whole world. He says in verse 14, Joshua asks him the question, and then this man says, No! But I am the commander of the army of the Lord, and now I have come. No. That word tells us a whole lot. That one little syllable actually gives us a lifetime worth of, of truth. He's saying with the word no, he's saying in essence, Joshua, you're asking the wrong question. You are looking at this whole thing from the wrong perspective. You're forgetting where you fit here. The question is not, am I on your side? The question is, are you on God's side? The question is not, am I on your side? The question is, are you on God's side? Hmm. Think about that. I mean, if we could realize what Joshua did right here, if we could connect with this, what kind of difference would that make in your life? So often we, we look at the circumstances of our lives, right? Our successes, our failures, whether we've had good days or bad days, and we want to use those as some kind of measure, some kind of test to see if God really favors us. We look at our circumstances and we say, God, are you on my side? Are you going to help me get what I want or what? What's going on here? We say, please, God, give me this job. Give me this relationship. Give me this paycheck. Give me this outcome for my children. Give me this dynamic in my marriage. Give me this good report on my health. And when we don't see that stuff, we start to, to worry. We start to doubt God's love for us. We start to question him. And when our struggles continue, when our stresses and our trials drag out, when we wrestle with the same temptations day after day, we start to ask that question, right? God, what's going on here? Are you for me? Are you for my adversary? But God says, no. No. That's the wrong question. It's not about what we want. It's not about what I want. It is about joining God in what he is doing. That's the way it was for Joshua, and it's the same for you and me. The question that we have to come to answer, the question that we need to decide on is not whether God is on your side, but whether you're on his. It's not about how do I see God working in my story, 
But how has God's greater story changed the way I approach my life? And if we could see that, if we could believe that this morning, if we could do what Joshua did, if we could lift up our eyes from our myopic, myopic focus on our, our present circumstances, and we could believe that we are a part of a larger story, man, what kind of freedom would that give you? How would it change the way that you, you live this week? In, in your marriage, in your workplace, the way that you are when you're by yourself and no one else is looking. When Joshua gets this, when he realizes that his question was all wrong, here's how he responds. It says, And Joshua fell on his face to the earth, and he worshipped. And he said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? When Joshua sees the bigger story, he's filled with worship. The trials that he's facing, those are real. That battle that's coming up the next day, that isn't going away. But that is no longer his main concern. Instead, we see that this is a man whose life has been reoriented to the bigger story. And he's ready to serve the Lord. He's ready to obey him no matter what it takes. He's ready to respond to the Lord's commands. So next, let's move on and see the question, the instructions that Joshua has given, right? We looked at the question that he asked. Now let's look at these instructions that, that Joshua has given. Joshua now, he has had his heart reoriented, and so God gives him the battle plan. He tells him, okay, here's what you're going to do. You are going to get your people, and you're going to march around the city of Jericho silently. You're going to have the priests leading the, with the Ark of the Covenant, and they're going to blow a horn the whole way as you go around the city, and then you're going to go home. And you're going to do that for six days. And then on the seventh day, you're going to do it seven times. And after that seventh time, everybody's going to shout and yell. And when you do that, the walls of the city will be laid down flat. Okay, so part of my job is to read and do research before I get up here to talk. <laughs> and I've read a lot about this passage this week. Uh, there's lots of different opinions, lots of different thoughts. But one place of unity that all the scholars have is they say that this plan is unheard of. This wasn't some kind of common battle strategy. There are not records of other wars where people did similar spectacular things beforehand. No one had ever done anything like this before. But Joshua, he doesn't question it. That's actually important because there are other instances like this where, where there's lots of questions asked. If you remember the story of the burning bush, same type of thing. Take off your shoes. It's holy ground. Moses had tons of questions. He was like, don't, I don't want to do that. That sounds terrible. But not Joshua. There's, there's no second guessing here. He doesn't say, well, won't they attack us if we just walk around? Why not just do it on day one? Why do we have to wait a whole week? No. He trusts the Lord. And we talked about this last week, right? This was a trust 
that, that he had learned over a lifetime. After all, this is the God who had freed him from slavery. This is the God who had walked with him in the wilderness every single day, who had fed him. This is the God who had brought them from the Red Sea in the beginning and through the Jordan River just a few days ago. This is a God who he has learned to trust. He has no doubt in his mind that God has good plans for his people. And so, Joshua obeys. He leads the people, just like God asked them to. But I, as I thought about this, I was just trying to imagine like, how, how foolish it must have looked to the people inside of Jericho. All fall, we've been reading about how scared these people were. Right? They were, their hearts had melted out of fear of the Lord. And then here comes the army finally to attack. And what do they do? Well, they just quietly walk around and blow a horn and go home. And nothing happens. Maybe that first day, they were probably really scared. But the second day, they're probably a little confused. <laughs> and the third day, well, here come the Israelites again. What are they doing? <laughs> this is really weird. I'm sure by the sixth day, there were probably some of them mocking them, laughing at them, right? What's the, what's the problem, guys? Can't, can't find the door? <laughs> you know, thanks, thanks for the music. We'll see you tomorrow. This is very, very nice. Very nice of you. And as weird as that whole, this whole story seems, as like a million years ago and foreign as the setting may be, I actually think this is a really powerful picture for us. Because it's a picture of how trusting obedience to God often looks like foolishness to the world. Trusting obedience to God often, it looks like this. It looks ridiculous to the outside world. And if you're living in that small story, if, if your story is just about you, then, of course, you're going to follow God in a way that benefits you. You're going to follow God in a way that makes sense, right? That's what we do. For most Americans, that's the way that we deal with religion. That's the way we interact with it. Religion, it's a set of rules, we think. It's a set of guidelines, and you kind of add those onto your life. You know, it's, it's a garnish to our story. It's like, you know, putting chives on a baked potato. Like, give it a splash of color. Help, help round yourself out. Um, I was visiting the South a couple of years ago, and while I was there, some guy was running for public office, and uh, on all of his signs, in addition to his name and what office he was running for, it said, member of blah, blah, blah church. And... The reason was because that's how that town fought. The idea was that church attendance, church membership is a sign of being a well-rounded individual. It's an asset for a leader. Now up here, we don't do that, right? We do the opposite of that. That would not be helpful for your political campaign, right? We live in a post-Christian society up here, is what the scholars call it. But you know, we're still, we still think this way. 
we are still susceptible to that mentality that, that God is just an accessory. That he's here for our benefit, if we so choose. He, he, if we want him, it's great. If not, it's fine. But if we do, it's really just to help us out with a life that's already going okay. And more often than not, that means that even in the church, right, even here, we often obey God only when it is less costly, when it is least awkward, when it is least inconvenient. We obey God when it's not painful where it's not going to make us stand out, where, it won't, where people aren't going to make fun of us, where they're not going to think we're weird, but instead we're going to follow God when it gives us an advantage. And so the way that looks, I think, is that oftentimes in the church we celebrate God's law when it flows with the tide. We're really excited about the things that God calls us to do when he calls us to do something that we already like. But when God's word commands us to do something we don't understand, it's a really different story. And that pressure point is always moving, right? The place where our culture lines up with God is, is always kind of moving around, right? In the 1950s, when we, when we present the 1950s in movies, they present it as this very wholesome time, right, where where families went to church together, where it was a generally kind of Christian ethic in society. But of course we know that that was a time when racism was, was rampant, right? When women were treated like second-class citizens. And at that point in time, yeah, it may have been easier to kind of live your life by a Christian sense of like a moral ethic. But if you were going to speak up about inequality, if you're going to speak up against racism, things that God really cares about, if you were going to, that would be radically countercultural. And let's be honest, that could cost you your life. You could die for obeying God in that way. Now today, we have definitely not reached perfection by any means. We have a long way to go when it comes to, to equality. But I will say, at the very least, it is not countercultural anymore, right? And that's glorious, actually. That's a beautiful thing. We should, we should celebrate that, that part of God's values, that there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, that his vision for this world where every tongue and tribe and nation worships together, we should celebrate that our whole world wants that. We should celebrate that that's something that everybody can get behind now and be excited about. Those things are actually really near to God's heart. So that's a glorious thing. But today, there are other places that, that turn our stomachs a little bit. I mean, I think that the, the easiest one is the Bible's sexual ethic, right? That is the thing that has become really taboo in our culture. The idea that God might care about our, our sex lives, that's offensive. That's oppressive. The notion that we shouldn't be unequally yoked with an unbeliever or that sex is reserved for the context of marriage. The world sees that and they say, what are those people doing? What are those fools up to? <laughs> is it really worth all that energy? What's going to come of that? 
Does God really care if, if somebody lives with their boyfriend or their girlfriend? Does God really care about what people are looking at on the internet? Yeah. Yeah, he does. Scripture tells us that he actually does care about that stuff. Just as much as he cared about the culture surrendering to his racial ethic in the 1950s, he cares about the culture surrendering to his sexual ethic in 2018. The truth is, from the world's perspective, God's ways are never going to make sense. There's always going to be places where they seem foreign, they seem unusual. But as the Israelites marched around Jericho, and eventually their, their shouting, their obedience, led to this moment when the walls collapsed. It's not arbitrary what God has called his people to do. These aren't just arbitrary rules that he's set out. He's calling his people to follow him in a, a wholehearted obedience. He's calling us to live a life of obedience, not because of what it's going to get us. Not because it might benefit us somehow in the long run, but because we trust that he has a plan. Because he is a God who actually brings people out of their slavery to sin and out of the slavery to death and brings us into a promised land where we get to spend eternity in his presence. Because we are a part of a bigger story. So God gives these crazy instructions. And that brings me up to the third thing I want to talk about, which is the deliverance that God provides. I'm sure the Israelites circling the city looked crazy. There's no way to get around that. It looked, it looked weird. It sounded weird. But on that seventh day, when they all let out that shout, however many thousands of people that was surrounding that city, there was no longer any question what they were there to do. God's purposes were fulfilled. And this whole story, you know, if you were to take the time and, and read through it slowly, it, it does sound kind of extreme, right? We read verse 17 where it says, in that moment, Joshua says, shout, for the Lord has given you the city, and the city and all that is within it will be destroyed, will be devoted to the Lord for destruction. We hear that, and we're like, what is going on with this? Devoted to destruction? Well, actually, I know that's a really big question, and I wish we had more time to like sit in it today, but here's my promise. If you keep coming, two weeks from now, we're going to spend a whole week on what the heck is going on with these people marching in and, and wiping out an entire nation. We're going to try to address those questions as clearly as we can. But for now, let me just point you to the second half of that verse, where Joshua says, but don't forget about Rahab. He says, everything's devoted to destruction, but don't forget to rescue Rahab. If you remember, Rahab was a, a prostitute in that town who had come to faith in the true Lord. It's a reminder here, just that little bit. It's a reminder that, that even amidst this declaration of judgment, there's nobody that's too far off. God's plan for redemption is to redeem all of his people. 
his people from every tongue, from every tribe, from every nation, and that he will do whatever it takes. If you belong to him, he's going to snatch you out, even the most unlikely people. He's going to deliver you from the jaws of death and bring you into his eternal joy. Maybe that little piece of this story is what speaks to you today. I don't know where you're coming from. I, I don't know if it's been a while since you've been in church, but maybe that's where you are today, where you're just here and you know, you get the sense that maybe Jesus is calling you. Maybe he's inviting you to live in his bigger story. However, if we go back and we, we need to not pass over that, the beginning of verse 17, because it also reminds us that nobody can stand against the judgment of the Lord. And maybe you find yourself in that place today where you're, you're like I was describing the people of Jericho. You see God's instructions and you're laughing at them. You're here at, at church every week, but you're like, I don't really think I need to, to obey that. I'm just going to live how I want to live. And I'm going to let God round me out. You're sitting behind the walls of your comfortable life saying, well, those things just seem silly. It seems pointless. But Scripture tells us that when we do that, we are, are standing against a God who describes himself this way. This is what he says in Exodus 34. God proclaims himself, and he says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. God is just. A good God has to be just. And that means he's not going to let the guilty go unpunished. And you might be sitting here this morning, coming to church every week, thinking that this sin that you have just decided to tolerate is small. But I want to tell you that it is a symptom of a heart that does not fear the living God. And that's something you should be worried about. But before you walk out of here devastated, I want to remind you that of another way that we can look at this story. You see, God's plan for overthrowing this city of Jericho, it's, it's counterintuitive, to say the least, right? This is not the plan that you or I would have come up with. And it seemed foolish. And yet, in the end, this plan, it brought about this decisive victory that put the glory of God on display for thousands of years. You might look at this story and you say, well, I've, I've never seen anything like that before. I've never seen God do something like that. But yes, you have. You see, for us as Christians, this, this story points us to a much more counterintuitive victory that God has won for us in Jesus Christ. When the walls of our unrepentance 
The walls around our hearts were so tall that they seemed like they were impossible to overcome. The gospel tells us, the good news tells us that rather than coming in fire and judgment, rather than coming in this righteous justice to crush the people who had rebelled against them, it tells us that God became flesh. In the incarnation, in the person of Jesus, God stepped out of time and eternity and he made himself small and vulnerable. Not powerful and mighty. He entered into our temptation. He entered into our pain, our suffering, our questions, our doubts. He entered into our confusion. Folks, Jesus, he was the true commander of the Lord's army. But you know, when he came, he did not come with his sword drawn in judgment. He didn't come ready to do battle with us. Matthew tells us that he came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. For you. See, the truth is we have all earned the sword. That all of us, through our disobedience, through our unbelief, we have earned the sword. Through our questioning, through our mocking of his law and his ways. But on the cross, the sword of God's justice, the sword of his righteous wrath, was plunged into the side of Jesus Christ. And when the water and the blood poured out, proof that he was dead, but also proof that our punishment had been taken away. That for every single person who would turn and confess their sin and, and look to Christ as their Savior, that we could break out of our small stories and be connected to his true, bigger story. One that, that ends with not just the, the walls of the sin in our hearts, but the walls of all the sin and the brokenness in the fallen world coming down. And a new heavens and a new earth with eternal joy replacing it. So the thought of that, uh, the thought of this kind of obedience has, has really been hard for me this week. It's been a big challenge. Um, because I know in my heart that this story is, is true. And yet I still wrestle with the fear. Right? I still wrestle with a lack of faith. I still wrestle with my own sin. And I've been thinking about that a lot this week. Where can I go? Where can you go? Where can we go to find the strength to believe? To find the strength to obey God, to follow Him, even when it seems countercultural, even when the world laughs at us, even when it doesn't make sense, even when it's costly? Well, I think the answer is right here, too. Just like Joshua, the only way we're going to find strength is by looking up and encountering God. By, by falling on our face in worship. 
by lifting up our eyes and seeing his mercy that's, that's on display in Jesus Christ, by seeing his beautiful sacrifice for us that's, that's represented here, right here at this table. That strength comes when we surrender to him. When we're able to, to come with Joshua and ask that same question, what does the Lord say to his servant? And so that's, that's my invitation this morning. I want to invite you to cry out to God in that same way that Joshua did in this passage. To bow before him in worship, knowing that, that you're a part of his story. He's not a part of yours. To see the glory of the salvation he's given you in Jesus. And I want you to take a moment right now as we prepare to come to this table to, to ask him, what does the Lord require of me? And take some time to listen. Hear what he might say to you in response. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful for the truth of your scripture. We're grateful, God, that, that your ways are higher than our ways. When we think about uh, following you, it's often uh, not going to be a path to success. It's not going to be a road to glory. It's not going to be a road to praise in this world, but it is a path to joy and to contentment and to faithful trust. Lord, would you forgive us for our lukewarmness? Would you forgive us for our unbelief? Lord, would you rescue the lost? Maybe there's somebody here in this room who's like Rahab, ready to be snatched up into your greater story. Father, would you walk with us? Would you assure us of your presence? Would we see you today as we come to this table? In Christ's name, amen.